Right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, another chance to gather together like this as your children in this world, the devil's world. But you give us the chance to join hands, to unite as soldiers for Christ. You give us the chance to learn and be equipped so that we can bring you glory in this world before the end comes. And we thank you for this privilege of serving you in this way. And we thank you for preparing us by your word and your spirit. Father, we are eternally grateful for your son and what you allowed him to do for us, both the crucifixion but also the resurrection, so that he would die for us and also be raised for us for our justification. Help us never be familiar with this amazing plan you set up and you also followed through on. We're eternally grateful for that, Father, that your love motivated this great deed. Father, please bless this message. Have your spirit guide us and teach us, help us understand supernatural things. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Resurrection Sunday special, part two. So obviously the Spirit's not done with this, and um, as I mentioned earlier, we could go on and on with this wonderful subject. Uh, first of all, here's a verse that came up twice on Sunday, both in the beginning of service and then in communion service. On the board, this will start us off quite humbly. Isaiah 53, verse 5. A prophecy, nonetheless. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The Lord Jesus Christ went through all this horrible suffering and then rose from the dead, all to give us rest, to give us hope, to give us peace with God. And the big thing I personally received on Sunday from, you know, that wonderful message was a sense of rest, the ability to uh, rightly rest in the resurrection. It's almost like, you know, with the victory proven, proven, not just claimed, with the victory proven, we can now relax and rest on that victory because of the evidence that's been given us. So this gives us the rest and the peace that God desires us to possess as his adopted children. So on Sunday, the Spirit showed us what Resurrection Sunday is all about, and he shared with us how vitally important the resurrection is to us, but at the same time, he shared how simple the resurrection is, and the gospel, part of the gospel. And the point is that keeps coming up over and over, even in our, our recent studies and the gospel reload the last few years, the point that keeps coming up over and over is that we don't need to complicate the gospel. This is not a complicated thing, thank God. There are parts to it, there are facets to it we should understand, but it's simple. So instead, what we should do, instead of trying to complicate it, is we should rightly give it top priority in our own hearts first, 
And that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the capstone of the gospel. And then we can share it with others once it's right in our own hearts first. And that's what God's always doing for us if we humbly sit before him like tonight. So turn again in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This great chapter on the resurrection. We'll use this again as our guide, but we have some different things to discuss and some different scripture to compare to. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So on the board, we talked about these words here in vain in this passage. To Paul, Christ's resurrection was fundamental to the faith. He was saying that if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. Something to think about. It's a great reminder. Um, remember, as we studied the book of Acts in our Bible study on the board, we, we went over this a couple of weeks ago. Paul said he was on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He narrowed it down to that thing, that problem that the Pharisees, that the Sadducees, that the religious people had with him, challenging basically Jesus Christ was the one. What was the ultimate proof he was the one? The resurrection. But they refused to believe it. They refused. So Paul said he was on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead in Acts 23, 6. It truly is the linchpin of the gospel. We see similar um, phrases in Acts 24, 15, and 21, and in Acts 26, 6 through 8. So hold your thumb here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and turn to Acts 26, verse 6. Acts 26, 6. And this is Paul speaking. Um, he's on trial before a king. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you, among you people, if God does raise the dead? It's almost like Paul saying, what's the problem? This is simple. Yeah, you're going to have to believe it by faith because you weren't there, but there are many eyewitnesses. What's the problem? Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And in verse 6, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise. What promise? The promise made to our fathers decades ago, thousands of years ago. Same promise. And why do you think it's not possible if that's always been the promise? So again, the point on the board... Paul said he was on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. It, the resurrection, truly is the linchpin of the gospel. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So just as Paul mentioned the hope of the twelve tribes of Israel in Acts 26, the resurrection had always been the hope of God's people. There he says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, according to the prophecies, the Old Testament. As came out on Sunday, we tend to forget about how very ancient the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. We tend to lose the big picture. We tend to not think with an eternal perspective on the board regarding the ancient truth. The gospel transcends human history as we think of it, for it was planned by God from eternity past. God has always known that his creatures would fall and that he would save them. Just think about that, and he created us anyway. God has always known that his creatures would fall and that he would save them. There was never a time where salvation wasn't an option, for God is immutable. And the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. Hebrews 13.8 on the board. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God was never caught by surprise. God never not knew something before he went forward in it. So it's perspective. We step back and look at the big picture of all creation and God's master plan. And that should blow us away even more that he was willing to follow through, even though he knew the suffering he was going to have to endure to save us. And there cannot be a more humbling statement than this, that the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. That was his heart. That was the desire of his heart and eternally passed before any creation. On the board... Jesus Christ has always been our Lord and Savior. He is that person of the Godhead uniquely as the Son of God and Son of Man. He owns all the titles, including Victor, and deserves every last ounce of love and respect he demands from us. Romans 5.17 Again, it's about having the right perspective. We all deserve death. We're all born under condemnation, the condemnation of death as a penalty for sin. And man is stuck in that dominion if he doesn't believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the resurrection is what made it all possible and made it official even. He rescued us from eternal separation from God. And now the victory is complete. On the board, we saw Romans 5.17 in the Amplified Classic. For if because of one man's trespass, lapse, or offense, death reigned through that one, much more surely will those who receive God's overflowing grace, unmerited favor, and the free gift of righteousness, putting them into right standing with himself, reign as kings in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. What are we destined to do to actually reign as kings in life? Why? The victory's already been won and sealed, delivered. 
And so now our job is to step into the victory. Our job is to share in the victory by grace. All the glory, of course, to God in that case. So again, hold your thumb in 1 Corinthians and go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. On the board, we see those who receive God's grace also receive the free gift of righteousness. And look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the deal. That's the setup. That's the the plan, um, whatever you want to call it. This is the agreement. This is what takes place when somebody receives God's grace by humbling themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was consummated at the resurrection with both sin and death being completely defeated. That's why the resurrection is such a key point. On the board, Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof that God had accepted his sacrifice, that God would be just in justifying the ungodly. He was raised because of our justification. So on Sunday, as we saw in John chapter 8, and is as mentioned many other times in the four Gospels, Jesus claimed to be the great I am from the Old Testament when God was speaking with Moses. So for Jesus to clearly claim a title that belonged to God himself illustrates his claim to being God in the flesh, as we know, but it's something that so many Christians don't actually understand, which is super sad because he is who he is. He's the great I am. On the board, Jesus Christ is so immense that even death could not contain him. We believers are resurrected to life for one reason. Jesus conquered it, paving the way for his own. Jesus conquered it, paving the way for his own. Remember in the Old Testament, when the believers died, they went under the ground to paradise. Heaven's gates weren't open yet for believers. Christ literally had to open the gate. He literally had to pave the way by making such a uh, perfect, acceptable sacrifice himself. And then God was free to let us in, to follow him. And Romans 6.4 keeps coming up, if you haven't noticed. It's something we must consider and reckon to ourselves for our own spiritual walk and in our, our personal relationship with Him, which we'll see coming up. Also, a big word for us to remember in this discussion is hope. How is there possibly any hope whatsoever without the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you remember how distraught and how scared the apostles were after His crucifixion? They were hiding in a room, scared of the authorities, wondering what to do next. They weren't living in hope and faith. 
Why? Because they didn't understand the resurrection and they didn't believe the resurrection yet. No resurrection, no hope. They thought it was the end when it was really the beginning. No resurrection, no hope. And think of this too. Without the resurrection, not only would we be asking if this were all true, like the apostles were. I mean, think about how many miracles the witness, uh, miracles the apostles witnessed that Jesus performed. Thousands? We don't know, but maybe. And yet, they were questioning if this was all true when he was gone. Not only that, but without the resurrection, we'd be missing our defense attorney. Picture this. You're standing in a courtroom. Uh, It's sentencing day. And you're facing death row. And your attorney doesn't show up. Nightmare, right? How am I possibly going to get out of this? And that's like, you know, the spiritual life or having faith even without believing in the resurrection. There's no hope. But because of his resurrection... Jesus is standing by our side as our advocate, as the Bible teaches, even defending us at the right hand of God as we speak. Even Job knew this. In the middle of his trials, when his faith was tested, when he was doubting, even Job clung to this as his hope. On the board, John 16, 19, and 19, a joke, John, Job 16, 19, 1925. Some people say job, whatever you want to say. Job 16, 19, 1925. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. I mean, Job was in bad shape during these chapters. If you read the verses before and after these verses, but he clung to his hope, like clinging to a garment, clinging to the robe of Christ, not letting go. What hope is there without the resurrection? And the Apostle John reminds us of this same truth in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How would we know that he's there with the Father defending us if he didn't rise from the dead? No hope. Just wondering. So there he is, the resurrected and victorious one, representing us at the side of the Father, the righteous judge. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15.3. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. We saw on Sunday when Paul says, I am not fit. It's from the Greek, uk aimi hikanos. It means not sufficient, not able, not worthy. Paul depended wholly on God's grace poured out through Christ to assure him of his salvation. He said, I'm not fit. As came out on Sunday, if we share in Paul's unfitness, if we share in this reality, honestly, in our own hearts, on our own condition before God, then we understand grace. But there are many so-called Christians that don't understand grace because they think they're fit, sadly enough. And you think about it, some, some people think they're fit on their own and they're not even an apostle. Think about that. In other words, if anyone has the right to think they are fit, wouldn't it be an apostle? I'm speaking as a man. But yet there are quote-unquote Christians and there are unbelievers that think they're fit enough to satisfy God on their own. Every man should obviously drop his arrogance and follow Paul's example here. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 15.9. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, then he has, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Sounds like the question he asked in Acts 26. Why is it so hard for you to believe that someone can rise from the dead? This has been prophesied for hundreds of years. On the board, the resurrection is the great evidence that God accepted Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf, satisfying the righteous demands of the justice of God. Without that reality, man has no hope. Without, without that being an event in human history that actually occurred, man has no hope. And if the resurrection never happened, as the book continues to say, we're still stuck in our sins. But it did happen. That's kind of the whole point. That makes all the difference. Kind of like going from zero to 100. The victory is proven. The victory is now complete. And think about it this way, and this might be a perspective to share when you witness to others. Because some people you witness to are going to, going to doubt the resurrection, or they already do doubt the resurrection, right? Yeah, I've heard about Jesus. I, I heard, you know, that he's the son of God. Maybe I believe that, but did he actually rise from the dead? So think about this perspective on the board. How is the gospel good news if there isn't life after death? What is this all about if there isn't life after death? Why did he suffer so horribly on the cross if there isn't life after death? There must have been a major reason. 
So it's a perspective to share maybe when you're given the gospel. How could there not be resurrection from the dead? What is this all about then? One major purpose of the cross was to purchase life after death. And you can see why Satan and his agents try to plant seeds of doubt about the resurrection. He'll even use some loving people in your life who are ignorant of the word or deny the faith altogether maybe. And these loving, unsuspecting people are used as agents of Satan to infiltrate your soul and the soul of those you love around you. To disturb what? What does Satan hope to disturb? Your hope in the resurrection, your hope of eternal life, your confidence of eternal life because of the resurrection. So be on guard for that. Satan would love us in this room, those who, those who stick with the word, those who want to learn and, and grow and bring glory to God with their lives. He wants us to doubt so that we get out of the way, so that we're not useful to the master. And he'll plant seeds through loving people, through good people, through religious people, maybe people that we respect, just so we doubt the resurrection. So don't let it happen. The Spirit is saying, stand firm in your faith. You know the word, stand firm. Don't let anybody interrupt your confidence and your hope. And you might even have to stop listening to someone and walk away from them because you have to protect your soul. So go to Ephesians 6, verse 10. And you can hold your place also if you want. That'll be good. Ephesians 6, 10. And let's just see a little reminder of what's really going on when people are planting, trying to plant seeds of doubt in you. And let's see what we're told to do. Ephesians 6.10 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, it's not against people, but who does Satan use? People. But when you see the people coming at you, planting seeds of doubt, you should step back and look at the big picture and, and say there's spiritual forces around them, motivating them, deceiving them. So that's what it means when it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, even though people will be used. What's really going on is it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day when someone tries to lie to you about the resurrection or challenge your hope. Resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. It doesn't mean you have to go forward charging with your sword. It means you don't take a step backwards. I'm standing firm in this hope. You're not going to move me. And then Satan will flee, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But we have to choose. Cling to the hope like Job did, no matter what. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Who do the flaming arrows come from sometimes? People. People that you love. And then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And because you're faithful to the Word, you have the Word implanted in your soul, including the Word about the resurrection, our great hope. On the board, here's another verse that's been coming up recently, over and over. So take note, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents, know your enemy, in other words, and innocent as doves, know your Lord. Now couple that with 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Is he trying to devour you physically or spiritually? Spiritually, of course. He's trying to get you to doubt. And he'll use people that you love. Satan would love for you and I to start doubting or questioning the resurrection. So as soon as you start entertaining those doubts, as soon as you hear doubts projected at you from others, realize it's an attack from the pit of hell, that Satan wants to deceive you, or just get you out of the way and resist that lie and stand firm in the truth. Amen? All right. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 13 again. I mean, it's like we have to make up our mind to stand firm in the truth. Do you know what I mean? The minute we start entertaining things that come at us, that's when we start falling for it and uh, allowing our hope to be disturbed. So there's a certain vigilance and even righteous indignation that is very good to have when people are projecting at you lies. 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. This is why the resurrection of Christ means everything. It means a true crossing over from death to life. It's one thing if Jesus died for us. But if that was it, we'd be like, what's next? And how do we know what's next? It's the true accomplishing or the true crossing over from death and burial to resurrected life, to a brand new life. It means going from nothingness and no hope to eternal life with our loving God and Creator. And again, that's why we say resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. Where would we be without it? 
we'd have to assume everything's for nothing. Look again at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. On the board, we saw the word for pitied in the Greek, elienos. It means pitiable, wretched, in great need of mercy. Because desperate. Because there's no other way. In great need of mercy. In context, our only hope is null and void. And now, Paul shows us he knows the Lord and he shares his utmost confidence in the resurrection. After making this argument, after trying to show people how silly their argument is in even doubting the resurrection, look at verse 20. But, Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now hold your thumb here, and let's go again to a fabulous passage that declares the power and victory of our Lord in resurrection. Go to Romans 6, verse 3. This, this uh, chapter in context is just really powerful and it takes faith, but it's showing us, it's showing us the rationale, but it's also showing us how to have faith in the resurrection and the new life that Christ purchased. Romans 6.3 Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives... He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. Consider this a reality for yourself. Based on the proof of the resurrection, based on that evidence, consider this a reality. That these promises are true. These statements are true. And they're not based on us doing it. They're not based on us deciding to live in the new life. These are things that have already been done for us, like given to us. So it's when we, in verse 11, consider yourselves, 
consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, that's when we can live in this reality. But it's already been done. It's already been granted. So back to 1 Corinthians 15 and go to verse 54 now. As we know, even though we will be physically resurrected one day with Christ, um, following his example of what happened, but also we can live in the resurrection now. But 1 Corinthians 15, 54 talks about one day. But when this perishable, that's our earthly body, will have put on the imperishable, that's our resurrection body, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we saw the beautiful passage in Isaiah that Paul quoted from. Let's see it on the board in Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. He will swallow up death for all time. Just think about that statement, folks. You mean there's no more fear of death? You mean death is no longer in the way? You mean death is no longer a judgment for us or a curse or an eternal separation from God? Well, it can't be if it's swallowed up for all time. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. And this is in Isaiah 700 BC, talking about what Jesus did on the cross, after the cross. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What a privilege to live, you know, when we do now, looking back and having the victory already accomplished. In verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We saw that was quoted from the Old Testament also, Hosea thirteen fourteen, on the board. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Again, this was all prophesied. And this was supposed to happen, and it did happen. It's an ancient truth that God has always shared with his people as the great hope in him. And in verse 56, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So there's our problem. On the board, we saw William MacDonald address this. Death would have no sting for anyone if it were not for sin. It is the consciousness of sins, unconfessed and unforgiven, that makes men afraid to die. If we know our sins are forgiven, we can face death with confidence. If, on the other hand, sin is on the conscience, death is terrible, the beginning of eternal punishment. How can we know our sins are forgiven? Without direction, we wouldn't know for sure. But now we do. Again, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the board, victory in Jesus. Victory of any kind implies defeat. We do not simply proclaim victory as some do, thinking heaven is the purpose of salvation. We are saved from something, and that is death. Death has been defeated. What's the victory over? Death, swallowed up for all time. Death has been defeated through Christ's resurrection and therefore our own. So this thing called death, also known as separation from God, this is what was saved from, slavery and bondage to that dominion. And on the board, we know now that salvation is not a destination. Christ wasn't resurrected to conquer hell. Rather, he was raised to conquer death itself. He defeated death. He walked out of the grave, folks. He literally defeated death. No power over him. And we're related to him through faith. So we have the same power given to us. We belittle his work on the cross and his subsequent victory over death if we suppose such things. Yet that is precisely what many so-called Christians believe. We'll close today with this idea which came up on Sunday. And it even leads us back to our study on repentance. It's when we're rightly oriented to truth that we begin to live with godly motivation including the truth about the resurrection. It's when we're rightly oriented to truth. And you have to know the truth first, right? You have to come here and be humble and, and want to learn the Word and read your Bible on your own and want to know the truth. And then you can be rightly oriented to that truth and then you can live with godly motivation. And this includes godly sorrow leading us to repentance. And that grounds us and that leads us to salvation, as Holy Scripture states. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. So, it's then that we embrace and live in the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, desiring to live for others instead of self. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Do you see what godly sorrow produced in these believers? All of these good things, uh, a way to live with godly motivation. An appreciation for the cross and the resurrection. And I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, I see a changed heart which is only the product of God's grace. On the board, the repentant heart realizes what Christ saved us from 
And we now desire to live for God and Christ and treat others as Christ treated us. And having the resurrection in view, we live a life of rejoicing. The resurrection makes all the difference, doesn't it? It's, it's the hope. It's the reason we can keep on living without fear, without letting uh, sorrows overcome us. It's the reason we can have uh, joy and peace despite the sorrows in this life. And we also have the power to obey things like 1 Thessalonians 5, where we're told to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. Where does that power come from? Well, if you've got no hope, you've got no power to do that, unless you force it in the flesh. But where does your supernatural spiritual power come from to live like that? The hope of the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection. The victory of the resurrection allows us and empowers us to live a certain way, and that is with hope. And that is also recorded for us at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. So go back there real quick. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. And this is kind of, you know, a similar idea to what we just saw that godly sorrow produced for the people in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in other words, because God gave us the victory, and notice the words gives us in verse 57. Because God gives us the victory through Christ, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Like stand firm, resist in the evil day. Again, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How do we know it's not in vain? Because of the resurrection. Why isn't our faith in vain like earlier in this chapter? Because of the resurrection. And therefore our work is not in vain. Because he's proven who he is, and he's already defeated death. And there's a life to come, and it all means something. So I'd like to close by reading a passage that sums up our great hope of resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. And this came up in my own Bible reading at just the right time, and I hope it's a nice capstone for you as we rest in the power of the resurrection. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. So here we see our resurrection, or a version of it, the hope to come. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How do we know? Eternal in the heavens? How do we know? We know, don't we? For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Eternal life there. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. See, we have hope. What do you think courage is? What does it look like? We have hope. You can't have courage if you don't have hope. Verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This great exchange, this gift from God, all possible and even established because of the resurrection. And this is why at times we will be on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this privilege of studying your word and seeing the wonderful hope we have, the wonderful proof we have of the resurrection forevermore. We ask that you bless us as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Thank <clears throat> you.